Nightlife with Sarah McDonald on ABC Radio. Well, this week in history marks the anniversary of the dethroning of Lady Jane Grey, the Queen who ruled England for a mere nine days. She was left the crown by Edward VI, the son of Henry VIII, in 1553. But before she could be crowned, she was deposed by forces loyal to the Queen who had become known as Bloody Mary and executed the following year. So who was Lady Jane Grey and how did she come to be in line for the English throne? And why was the weight of history against her? Dr Stephen Edwards is a historian with a fascination for Lady Jane Grey. He did his PhD on her and he's writing a biography too. He joins us from Pasadena, California. Hello, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, so I just want to ask before we get into it, how did someone from, you know, Republican USA get so fascinated about, a, you know, a, a queen who ruled for such a little time so long ago? You say Republican. That has a very specific meaning in this country right now. Oh, I'm <laughs> a republic country because <laughs> we're still a constitutional monarchy, you see. A, a non-monarchy. Yeah, yeah. We'll okay. call us a non-monarchy. <laughs> Essentially, when you write a PhD dissertation, as I did, you're required to choose a subject that no one's ever done before, or you have to approach the subject in a way that no one's ever done before. And in my case, Lady Jane Grey was this just this huge opportunity that no academic or scholarly historian had ever tackled up to the point that I did my PhD in 2007, 10 years ago. Um there's never been a good scholarly treatment of her and her reign. And so that was just this huge opening for me to step into, and I did. Yeah. And so you've done the PhD. You're now in the process of writing a biography. Before we get into her and her her life and her brief rule, can you just remind us of the family tree of Henry VIII? Six wives, two religions, three surviving offspring. It made the question of succession a bit complicated. Um, three surviving offspring, but four acknowledged offspring, which makes it even more complicated. People tend to forget that he had an illegitimate son named Henry mm. Fitzroy that he acknowledged. Mm. And Henry Fitzroy does play into this story, actually. Um, Henry VIII had an older brother who died, famously died, and Henry VIII stepped into Arthur's position as the heir to the throne. He also had an older sister named Margaret and a younger sister named Mary. That younger sister, Mary, eventually had a daughter named Frances Brandon, and Jane Grey is the daughter of Frances Brandon. So that makes her the granddaughter of Henry VIII's younger sister or Henry VIII's grandniece. All right, but, but why... Did Henry the sorry and but Edward the sixth was Henry the eighth's only surviving son, Correct. and and he he was the king, but he was rather sickly. Why did he begin to cast about for someone to inherit the throne other than his two half sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, who should have been next in line? Well, Edward the sixth wasn't actually sickly. That's a modern myth. He was actually very very healthy up until the beginning of fifteen fifty three. And he became ill in February of 1553 and did not recover from that illness. It was tuber- it proved to be tuberculosis in all probability. And he lasted from middle of February until the 6th of July. So it was you know a four-month illness. Uh, but yes, he had 
two sisters, Mary I, the future Mary I, and then Elizabeth. However, both of them were still by law illegitimate. They had been restored to the succession. They could succeed Henry VIII, and they could succeed Edward VI, but they could not inherit from him, from either. And that creates a legal problem. How can, in in English common law, an illegitimate person cannot inherit from their parents? So how can you restore someone to the succession if they're illegitimate? How but can they, they, inher- they had succession, but not inheritance. Correct. They could succeed to the throne, but the language of, of the third act for the succession only allowed them to inherit from the throne. It did not make them legitimate. So they were still considered legally illegitimate at the time that each inherited the throne. And why were they illegitimate? In Mary Tudor's case, Mary I, her mother, Catherine of Aragon, had been divorced by Henry on the grounds that their marriage was never valid to yes, start with. Right. So that made her illegitimate. If Henry was not legally married to Catherine, their marriage must have been illegitimate. The same thing essentially occurred with Anne Boleyn, though it took a slightly different course. Anne Boleyn was, of course, executed for treason because she had supposedly had relations with her brother and several other people and was accused of witchcraft and a number of other things. And Henry felt it necessary in the wake of that scandal to declare Elizabeth illegitimate as well. Basically, he had been tricked or or um, witchcraft had been used to cause him to marry Anne Boleyn. So that valid marriage wasn't valid either. And he had Elizabeth declared illegitimate as well. So when Henry died in 1547, he only had one legitimately, undisputably legitimately born child, and that was Edward VI. Mm-hmm. And so he was very conscious of this and, and began to look around for who could inherit the throne because his sisters could not. It's a good bit more complicated than that, and I take a somewhat different tack on the subject than than the current mythology and a lot of the popular writing that's out there. You know, traditionally, there are two explanations why Edward VI wanted to remove Mary and Elizabeth from the throne. The, for Mary, the common explanation is that Edward wanted to protect his religious settlement. He had taken the English church in a very Protestant direction with the Book of Common Prayer that's still in use today. That was actually first published in 1552. And Edward was very concerned that Mary would take the country back to the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to remove her. That's Mm -hmm. a traditional explanation. But it doesn't explain why he removed Elizabeth because she was Protestant and proved to be Protestant throughout her life. Then the other traditional explanation is that it was all John Dudley's fault, the Duke of Northumberland. He was eager to retain power. He knew that when Mary came to the throne, she would probably cut his head off. And in order to preserve his own life and his own power, he supposedly engineered this whole thing and forced it on Edward in order to make his own daughter-in-law queen so that he could be the power behind the throne, etc. Both of those explanations have some validity for the individuals that they apply to, but they do not explain why the larger political world in England went along with this. And the, my argument is that the real foundation for the whole thing is that Mary and Elizabeth were unmarried females. Illegitimate, yes, that was important, but more important, they were unmarried women. And in 16th century English culture, women 
did not take positions of public authority, public power, etc. They were barred from offices in the church. They couldn't vote. They couldn't serve on juries. They couldn't run for elected office. They couldn't serve in the military. They couldn't do a lot of things that men could. So how could you suddenly bring a woman to the throne to do traditionally masculine things? And that that was the uniting foundation for the entire succession crisis. Okay. Well, isn't in that my, fascinating, in given that uh, Elizabeth <laughs> went on to remain the, the Virgin Queen? What about, um, before we move on to Jane Grey, uh, what had Henry VIII himself wanted in terms of who to succeed Edward if Edward died childless? Had he thought about that or written about that or expressed any preference? He did. In 1543-44... He had the third act for the succession passed. He was about to leave England to go into France to lead an army to try to reconquer France, which was portions of which were uh, an English possession for many years. And he, as a responsible, enlightened monarch, he needed to set his affairs in order before he took this dangerous trip across the ocean, the English Channel, but still the ocean to them. And he he had this act passed, and the act very specifically states that it was for the purpose of his trip to France. And he had, you know, he names Edward, he names any of Edward's potential children, and then he very reluctantly moved on to Mary and Elizabeth, recognizing that in the 16th century, with illnesses like the sweating sickness and consumption and plague and everything else, it was entirely possible for Henry himself and Edward both to die within a reasonable time frame of each other. And that would leave only Mary and Elizabeth. And if there was any question about their legitimacy, their right to inherit, etc., the entire realm could devolve into the kind of dynastic conflict that you had throughout the 15th century with the Wars of the Roses, which, after all, was only about 75 years earlier. Mm. So Henry so, Henry wanted them, really, if, if need be. He was happy for them to one of them to become queen. I I would not say that he was happy for them to become queen. No, no, I wouldn't not go happy. That far. All right, but he was. You know, <laughs> that was what he said was next in the line. After so, so Edward was really going against his father's wishes. Yes, Edward was definitely going against his father's wishes. However, he Edward was responding to the larger political culture that mm. said we cannot have a woman on the throne, and that was a view that Henry shared. Henry had put Mary and Elizabeth back into the sex, succession only very, very reluctantly, and I believe with the anticipation that when he returned from France, he would have more children with Catherine Parr, there would be more boys, he'd have the heir and a spare and maybe two or three spares. Unfortunately, circumstances didn't allow for it, and less than three years later, he was dead. You're on Nightlife, and I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Edwards, a historian with a fascination for Lady Jane Grey. Uh, He did a PhD on her. He's in the process of writing a biography of the Queen who ruled England for a mere nine days. It was this week that uh, she was dethroned. All right, let's talk about uh, Lady Jane Grey. You've said how she was related to the family, but tell us a bit about her background and her nature. Um, She was the first child of a granddaughter of a king of England, a daughter of a queen of France. Her mother, Francis's mother, had been briefly queen of France. So Jane had decidedly royal blood, and she was raised as a quasi-royal person. She was actually always addressed as the Lady Jane Grey, never simply Lady Jane Grey. In much the same way today we refer to Prince Charles 
officially as the Prince Charles. She was exceptionally well-educated, particularly for women in that era, but even among men, she was exceptionally well-educated. She's believed to have been at least conversant in as many as eight languages, which is kind of startling for anyone even today, but for a woman in an era when less than 5% of the total female population could read and sign their own name, that was a phenomenal Mm. achievement. Yeah. And so, and and because, was she well-educated because her family put a great value on that, or was there a thought that she could one day become queen? It had become fashionable in early in the 16th century to begin educating daughters of wealthy people. Thomas More famously educated his daughter, Margaret Roper. Uh, William Cecil, uh, the man who became Elizabeth I's chief minister, his wife, Mildred Cecil, was very well educated. Uh, Even Anne Boleyn, to a certain extent, was educated. Catherine Parr was educated to a certain extent. So there was sort of this fashion that you educate your daughters because it's an ornament to the family. It shows that the family is up and coming, that they're in fashion, that they're in with the latest trends, which is education. But it was uncommon for someone to be educated to the extent that Jane Grey, a woman, to be educated to the extent that Jane Grey was, particularly with eight languages. I mean, that's just phenomenal. Yeah. And so she she was married in uh, to to Lord Dudley in fifteen fifty three was this about also you know connected because as you said before there was a, a desire not to have an unmarried woman on the throne Edward had knew that he was ill certainly by March he knew that it was unlikely that he would survive and so beginning in about the middle of March fifteen fifty three he began sort of looking around to see how can we we settle this issue. And he began working on something that has become known to history as the device for the succession. And in that, he began naming names. This person can inherit. This person can inherit. This person can inherit. But they were all women. And part of the issue was the fact that Mary and Elizabeth were both unmarried. Jane was unmarried. All of the other heirs were unmarried. And the most likely prospect is that if any of those women inherited the throne, they would take as a husband someone from a foreign realm because it was very rare Mm. for a sitting monarch to marry within their own realm. Henry VIII was kind of unusual in that regard. But even consider his first and and fourth wives were foreign, Catherine of Aragon and Anne of Cleves. And in the culture of the era, if the female was queen and she married a foreign man— that foreign man automatically became king of England. And therefore, England Ah. could be effectively transferred into the power of some foreign realm. And we do actually see this when Mary I comes to the throne. She promptly married Philip of Spain, and Philip became king of England. He is known as Philip I of England. We see it with William and Mary late in the 18th century, William of Orange and Mary Stuart after the Glorious Revolution. William of Orange was king of England because he was married to Mary Stuart as the rightful heir. Mm. So there was this, was this assumption, okay, whoever comes to the throne is going to marry, so what do we do about that? John Dudley came up with the brilliant idea, let's get her married beforehand to an Englishman and to an Englishman that we know will support a continued 
Protestant Reformation within the English church. And the only person that was available, and history has made much of this of this marriage, but if you look at English society in this era, virtually the only person that was available for her to marry at that point was Guilford Dudley. There just wasn't anybody else of suitable rank, of suitable wealth, of suitable position, education, etc., title, what have you, to be her husband. Right. And they married six weeks before uh, King Edward died uh, in, a, in a massive ceremony. Was Jane keen on the marriage? How did she feel about it? Does history tell us? History is a little ambiguous on that. Um, she seems perhaps to have resisted the marriage a little. There's a lot of mythology that she was beaten, that her father had to threaten her, that her mother whipped her with canes, all kinds of stories about how she was coerced into the marriage. But I don't actually myself believe that's true, and there's nothing in the contemporary sources generated during her own lifetime to support that idea. That she had to be remonstrated with by her parents is documented. But beaten and coerced? No, that's not documented. And it would have been against everything that she had been taught religiously to resist her parents' choice of husband for her. She was a great fan of the religious reformer Heinrich Bullinger in Germany. And Bullinger had written an extensive treatise on marriage, and Bullinger had said that the first duty of a Christian youth was to obey their parents in the matter of marriage. So for Jane to have resisted this to any degree would have been a violation of her Christian duty. Mm Mm-hmm. Edward died in July um, did, and, and named her as his successor. Did she realize it was coming? Again, we, the mythology says no, that she knew absolutely nothing about it. And yet we're expected to believe that her husband was involved since May the 5th, 25th. Her husband, Guilford, was involved in all this alteration of the succession. Her mother and father were involved. John Dudley was involved. Everyone around her was involved in this. And this was a girl so intelligent that she could was fluent in eight languages. How could she not suss out what was going on? How she could must she not have known. figure the, Yeah. She I absolutely. I'm absolutely convinced. I'm even convinced that she had been more or less unofficially informed several weeks beforehand. Mm. And I think the account that she gives of when she was told that Edward had died and she was queen, I think that account has been misread. Why? What's that account say? Well, the account says that that she was at Sion House in Richmond, west of London, and, you know, Dudley and, and the council come in and say to her, Edward has died. He was a great king. He did everything he could for religion, et cetera, et cetera. And he has named you queen. And in this account, she supposedly burst into tears. And everyone has interpreted that as her bursting into tears over her becoming queen. I interpreted it as her bursting into tears over the death of Edward, her cousin, whom she knew, had a relationship with. That was the tears. And then in her own account, she says she turned to God and prayed for his guidance. And if that was what God had chosen for her, that was what she would do. We're chatting with Dr. Stephen Edwards, historian on Nightlife, about the life of Lady Jane Grey, who ruled England for a mere nine days, dethroned this week in history. Um, so Jane was proclaimed queen. She wasn't crowned straight away. Uh, what made her position so weak? She simply, not only she, but the entire government, simply didn't have the support of the common people. 
the people knew Mary Tudor as the heir after Edward. Mary was significantly older. She'd been born in 1516, 1517, so she was, you know, 30-ish years old by now. Right. Lady Jane Grey was 17 at the 17. time. 17. Oh, gosh. Okay. So Mary had been around for a lot longer. Uh, Henry VIII had been married to Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon, mm. for decades as opposed to two or three years with his other wives. So the, the nation knew Mary as Henry VIII's daughter. They knew who Jane Grey was, but they also knew that she wasn't up in the line of succession, as it were. Uh, her own mother was still living. Why did her mother not inherit before her? How can a grandchild inherit from a grandparent with someone in the middle? Yeah. And meanwhile, Mary managed to, to gather her forces and, and assert her claim on the crown. How did she do this? Well, she didn't... I wouldn't say that she asserted her claim exactly. She was in Hunsdon and north of London, and she immediately began to take flight when she heard that Edward was dead. She began moving further away from London and towards the coast, probably thinking that the jig was up, she was going to have to flee the country and go into exile. She did send a letter, a couple of letters out to the council, to various other people saying, I should be queen. But I don't think she thought at the outset, that that would have any effect. I think she thought that it was all over and she was done for. But the common people immediately rallied to her cause and began to go to her. She didn't really have to call to them. Uh-huh. They spontaneously moved to her. And what did they do? And, How did the public make their feelings known? And Well, for example, when Jane Grey was proclaimed in London, when she was proclaimed queen before the crowds, the crowds were dead silent. All of the record of the witnesses that have left accounts of this unanimously agree that the crowd was silent. There was no cheering. There was no God save the queen. There was no nothing. That's your first clue that the population, the, the sort of common people, are not on your side with changing things. Then as, she, as Mary began to move north and towards the coast, as I said, people began to come to her, just spontaneously up and go to her. And even to the extent that a naval contingent that John Dudley had sent up to up the coast to keep her from fleeing by ship defected and went to her and said, here's our cannon, here's our ammunition, we'll be your troops, we prefer you, we're going to support you. And I think Mary very, very quickly, I mean, like literally within 48 hours, began to realize, hey, the common people are on my side. And this is really just a sort of junta at the center of London that's trying to depose me. So I'm going to kind of stand my ground here for a minute. And she only had to stand for literally a minute. And people began to flock to her like crazy. And how rife were the divisions in society between Protestants and Catholics? What role did that play in what unfolded over those nine days of Lady Jane Grey's being the queen? My research seems to suggest that the role that religion did not play a role among the common people. That was more of concern of the educated elite, which again represents a, like a 5% minority of the country. There's been a lot of scholarship done on the Reformation in England in the 16th century, and it's been pretty clearly demonstrated that it was a very, very slow process. It was what we call a top-down process. The educated elite decided to do it and then sort of imposed it on those at the lower orders of society. 
a lot of people, um, the vast majority of people, I would say, were still very much Catholic in the way that they believed and their their practices and observances. I mean, there had been riots and, and rebellions when Edward had published the prayer book in 1549, massive rebellions. Um, so the, the people supported Mary because she was the legitimate heir, regardless of, uh, not the legitimate heir, she, they supported Mary because she was the heir that they understood regardless of her religion. Yeah. So so what happened? How did Mary uh, gain the throne and uh, put Jane in the tower? Well, she didn't really have to do a lot. <laughs> um, it was The job was kind of done for her by, by the common people, not rising up exactly, but, but by flocking to her and by refusing to support Dudley, they made their opinion quite clear. You know, Dudley was assigned an army and was going to move north out of London to try to go and capture Mary. And he barely got outside the city gates before that army started falling apart. They started defecting and walking away from him. And that, to me, is a very clear sign that that army just was not supportive of what he was trying to do. And again, it it became clear to Mary that she had the support she needed, so she just sat back and let events take their course. And they did very, very rapidly. Even those at the center of power in the tower sitting next to Jane started questioning things right off the bat. Um, you know, there's the famous story of um, William Paulette, the Lord Treasurer, offering her the crown to try it on to see how it fits. And she would not put it on because it's a sacred object. And she was a very religious woman. She understood that you don't adopt these sacred objects until you're supposed to. And, he, and Paulette said to her, well, we're going to have another one made to, for your husband. And she responded to him basically, I mean, in modern language and said, oh, no, you're not. She basically said, I don't want him to be king. I will be queen if you want me to, but I don't want him to be king. And that basically pulled the chocks right out from under everybody because there was this assumption from the get-go that, yes, Jane would be queen, but Guilford would be king alongside her. So we would have a man on the throne. And then if Jane comes along and says, no, I'm not going to allow that, she's basically subverting their entire plan and making the whole thing pointless. So her own counselors very quickly began to abandon ship. She was sent to the tower and Mary did execute her in 1554. Was mm-hmm. she was she still a threat to Mary? She was because and she was executed specifically because she was still a threat. She had been tried and found guilty of treason on the 13th of November, fully 2 months before her execution. And of course this Rebellion, what's known today as Wyatt's Rebellion, erupted late in January of 1554, and that rebellion was specifically against Mary's choice of Philip of Spain as a husband, because there was, again, fear that he would become king of England and England would become a puppet state of Spain, and that was unacceptable. She was very much a threat because rebellions could erupt and make her their figurehead, their object of of someone to put on the throne in place of Mary. Elizabeth was actually in the same position, and Mary famously put Elizabeth under house arrest to keep that sort of thing from happening. Indeed. Well, she she only uh, was queen for nine days, but it's a, a fascinating period in history, and I thank you so much for talking to us tonight and uh, look forward to your book when it comes out. When's your book out? I hope in 2018, late 2018. Great. All right. Well, we'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much for talking to us about Lady Jane Grey tonight. Thank you very much. 
Dr. Stephen Edwards has been my guest, historian, writing a biography on Lady Jane Grey, and he also features in a BBC three-part documentary they're making at the moment that we might get in Australia at the end of this year or early next. This is Nightlife with Sarah McDonald on ABC Radio.